Good morning. Um, Ruth and I just shortly sort of introduce ourselves a little bit. Uh, Ruth and I are, as I told the students, we're both uh, PKs. She's a pastor's kid, and I'm a pagan's kid, and that uh, has really served us well. Ruth cannot remember not knowing Christ. Um, uh, gave her life to Jesus early age. By the time she was nine, she knew she wanted to be a missionary and, and live that life. I came to Christ in a cheese factory where I was working nights the last uh, 11, 12 weeks of my high school uh, experience. And uh, uh, remember reading the Bible for the first time and having a young pastor buying it for me and telling me to read a chapter from the Old Testament, New Testament. And I said, what's an Old Testament? What's a New Testament? And, and, uh, and then I felt like uh, I was going to be kicked out of Christianity because he told me to read a, a chapter of each one of those books. And I sat down and read Genesis the first day and Matthew the first day. And I thought, well, I've just failed Christianity. And, but uh, we, from the very first, when I read the book of Matthew, and I got to the last chapter, the last words of Jesus where he commands. Now listen, he didn't suggest, he, he, he didn't recommend, he commanded his followers that if you're going to uh, come after me, uh, uh, I'm sending you to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when I read that, I said to God, you mean I can get out of rural Kentucky and go anywhere uh, you want me to in the world? And and that was affirmed, but I had no clue how to do that. So I went to a Baptist college and majored in Ruth, and she knew all the uh, how to get through those doors. And they wanted her so bad, they took me honest, honest, honest. When that mission board decided finally to appoint us, uh, we went to Malawi in East Africa. They sent Ruth and our two boys, five years of age and three years of age, a round-trip ticket. Uh, to Malawi, and they sent me a one-way ticket. Now, that's subtle, isn't it? Uh, now, what I want to do is quickly allow us to look uh, through a window at what God is doing around the world. And, and I know our time is short, but I, I, really, I really want you to look through that window to see that the God of of scriptures, the God of the Bible, has not changed. And everything that God has ever done, He's still doing. And I, and I want you to, to see, to sense, and maybe in a way put your fingers on the pulse of God. And, and, and I hope that your heart will connect so much with what God is doing that you'll just can't wait to cross the street and maybe if you're really lucky, and I say that sincerely, that, 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 that you, you might be allowed to cross the oceans. And, and I am as honest as I can be. Uh, if I were a parent, uh, I had children, I would beg God to let me raise them overseas. Uh, especially uh, uh, among the peoples who are just so hungry to come to Christ and, and, and for us, for 35 years, to be able to do this together and, and to do it with our boys has just been a wonderful trip. Now, we're going to look at Matthew 10. That's the jumping off place. But we're going to settle in the first few verses of Matthew 11. And, and they're going to put 
some verses from Matthew 10 on your screen, but I'm not going to read them. I'm just going to give a synopsis of them. A 63% of all the peoples of the world that have no access to the kingdom of God today. Not one verse of scripture, not a song, not a missionary, not a single Bible study, not a single church. 63% of them cannot read or write a word. Wow. And Jesus resets the kingdom of God. Because he knows who he's talking to. I know who I'm talking to. And Israel was defined for generations by, the, by their temples, by their synagogues, by the wealth that they had stored in them. They're, they're defined by their holy of holies and their high priests. They're defined by their slings and their shields and their swords and the might of their army. And Jesus comes and says, it's not working. And I'm saying to you folks, as Americans, it's not working. And Jesus said, I'm going to reset this. And the longer that you're in Christianity, uh, you, you believe a lot of these words in the Bible actually make sense. But I remember the reading them for the first time. Uh, I, I played football with my brothers. I, I played sports. I, I heard the way the world talk. I, I've been around as we've fought uh, semi-wars and wars around the planet. And can you imagine when Jesus' disciples and those in, uh, in, in, in the range of his hearing heard him say, uh, I, I'm changing this up. I'm resetting the way it operates. And he says to them, from now on, I'm sending you out, not as pride, proud Jewish people, not as, uh, as we believe, a chosen race, not with the power and the training of our theologians and our high priests. I'm going to send you out as sheep among wolves. Who does that? What nonsense is that? What football coach, sports leader, what politician, what military leader, what businessman would say, here's, here's our new philosophy, uh, we're going to be sheep among wolves. Well, you all know that's a bunch of nonsense. You know intuitively, if you haven't been around sheep or wolves, you know that when a sheep and a wolf lines up against each other, who wins that? And Jesus says, I'm sending you as sheep among wolves. Now, why, why, why would he do that? And, 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 and he said, uh, he even goes further than that. And he suggests of all the places that his disciples, men and women, don't have access to. He says, I've got a plan to get you there. I'm going to let them arrest you. Do you not see already why we love to, to study and, and disseminate the Word of God as if it's in past tense. How we love to talk about the Bible as, as if we're talking about what God used to do. We'll bring that stuff in present active tense. Gets a bit dangerous, does it not? Uh, we've, we worked seven years in Somalia. We watched uh, what it was like to be sheep among wolves. We watched where uh, the wolves became, uh, they morphed into something uglier and uglier. We watched 
where just 150 believers among 10 million Somalis were hunted down and stalked. They killed four of my best friends on one day. And when we were kicked out of the country, only four of those sheep were left alive, sheep among wolves. I'm not sure that's what Jesus had in mind because in civil war and famines, all rules are off. But in a settled society where followers of God were, were, were in, 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 in regards of economy and education, were not seen to be that different from those who were outside the kingdom of God. Jesus says these words about being sheep among wolves. And he said, yeah, and, and you, you can't have access to the high priest. Uh, you can't have access to, to Caesar and Herod. And, and so I'm going to allow you to be arrested. Man, that's a good plan. And, and I'm, I'm going to let them do really bad things to you. They're going to abuse you and beat you. But I, I, I'm using this to give you access to the highest places of spiritual, sacred, I don't think it was that spiritual, to sacred religious society as well as secular world, and I'm going to send you as a witness to them, and I'm doing that as sheep among wolves. And you think that Jesus would give us a little bit of time to get used to that. Let us talk about it. Let us have a Bible study on it. Let's maybe even even determine whether we wanted to have a part of that. But, but in chapter 11 that I want us to focus on, from verses 2 to 6, uh, 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 Jesus allows this to play out in the life of his cousin, John the Baptist, in the life of a man that was the nearest thing to a pastor that Jesus ever had. John said, I, I've come to prepare the way. I baptize with water. Somebody's going to baptize. He's going to baptize with fire. I'm not worthy to unlace his sandals. When he saw Jesus come, he said, Behold the Lamb of, of God who takes away the sins of the earth. When he baptized Jesus, can you imagine having that on your resume? When he baptized Jesus, he heard the voice of God talking about, This is my son, whom I'm pleased with, whom I, whom I love. Uh, if there's anybody other than Mary that knew who Jesus was and what he was about, it was John the Baptist, and now John's in prison. And, and, and as we shared with the students quickly, and I'm going to do it just as quickly with you, for 35 years, Ruth and I have lived in parts of the world where you are as likely to be arrested for being good as you are for being bad or evil. You're from a culture, especially if you're Caucasian. You believe that people who are in jails and prisons are there because they deserve to be there. That's not what the reality is in the world that does not know Christ, never had any him influence their culture. You are likely to be in prison, in jail, beaten, tortured and killed because you are a righteous person. Wow. Wow. And, and John has looked uh, 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 a Herod in the eyes and said what he's always said. He, he didn't care whether you're the down and out or the up and out. You, you're, you're not going to have carnal knowledge of your brother's wife. 
And so he's in prison, and he's about to lose his head. Now, if, if, if John, Jesus even says later that John was the epitome, is that the right word, of, of, of an Old Testament prophet in, in, the, in, in the coming New Testament world. Uh, and, and John, you would expect, when, when he's in Herod's prison, knowing what is coming, that John would straighten his shoulders and, and puff out his chest. And, and like always, as he looked at the scribes and Pharisees, he would have fire in his eyes, and he would say, do whatever you want to. Uh, I will die the way that I've lived. But John didn't do that. I'm 18 years of age. John is quickly becoming one of my biblical heroes. And, and John messed up in my new Christian mindset. John failed me in my new Christian heart. When, when John didn't stand up, and, and, and as we would say in rural Kentucky, he didn't charge hell with a bucket of water. Uh, John uh, sent his disciples when he heard what Jesus was continuing and growing and doing, and he, and he, he wants to know. He, he says, he sends his disciples to Jesus and said, Are you the Messiah? Or do we wait for someone else? My goodness. What prophet of God would do that? What pastor who baptized Jesus would do that? Why would the man who prepared the way for the Messiah, why would when his back was against the wall, do such a thing? Now, uh, I, I didn't know that what Ruth and I know now. We have sat at the feet of over 700 believers in around 72 countries, after that Somali experience, listening to their stories, learning from them, being mentored for them, and we had found the, the, the strongest, the most uh, 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 bring-it-on believers in all of our world today, and maybe a few generations before us, every one of them deny their faith. Every one of them fall down. The difference is the ones who love Jesus and the ones who want to continue their journey, they get up. And, and I didn't know that in those days. And so John's questions broke my heart. And Jesus' reply refused me. Now, if somebody asked you after being here today and you are a follower of Jesus, if, if you've been a student of Scripture, maybe you had theological training, and they ask you at lunch or at work or at school this week, you know, I know you are a, a Christian, and uh, you go to that church. Uh, can you prove to me uh, why you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? What are you going to say? Now, I, I know the multiple syllable, syllable words, and I, I know all those uh, Jesus preexisted before the foundation of the world and all of this. But when Jesus heard John's question, his answer was so off the wall. Because he says, you go back and tell John what you hear and see. And, and, and chapter 11, verses 2 to 6, begin to record that. He said, basically, you go back and tell John what you see happening in the marketplace. The blind see. The lame walk. Uh, the deaf are hearing. Uh, those lepers, they're being, they're being made whole. They're being cleansed. And, and just 
in a normal voice. The, the, the dead are being raised, and, and the gospel has become so ingrained in people's lives that they're even surprisingly giving it away to poor people. My goodness. Jesus said to John, and he says to us today, that the authenticity of the Messiahship of Jesus himself is proven not by what we do in our worship time together, in our Bible studies together, in our theological training, wherever that might take place. His Messiahship has always been, is being proven, and will always be proven by what we as God's people do with Jesus out there in the marketplace. Wow. So what is Jesus doing in the marketplace of the world? Uh, Ruth and I met this young lady. She was 26. Uh, she, uh, there's three things that 93% of the Muslims experience. 93% of the, of the Muslims who come to, job, come to Jesus experience. Uh, first is dreams and visions. Every culture has a way they intersect with the supernatural. And with, with Muslims, dreams and visions are just, they just talk about it all the time. Uh, trying to make sense of them. What is miraculous is that the Holy Spirit breaks in the way that they normally intersect uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the supernatural. And he changes the message. And they'll hear a voice without a body saying, find Jesus, find the gospel. That's a direct quote. They'll, they'll, uh, uh, they'll, they'll dream and they'll dream of the Bible. And here's something that's tremendously interesting. They'll dream of the Bible. And we knew it was true among Somalis who had believed. But what we found out is true among Muslims in northern India. It's true of Muslims in Afghanistan, Pakistan. It's true of Muslims wherever you find them. When they dream of the Bible, it's always a blue book. Now, we'd expect it to be green like the Quran or black for some reason because that's sort of normal around the globe. But why, why off the wall when the Holy Spirit leads them to dream of the Bible, why is it a blue book? We've tried to find the answer to that for 15 years. It's, it's, just, it's just disconcerting uh, to try to... To, to discover what's going on, you can't. Well, I, we really believe about a year ago that a believer from Islam uh, background said, here's what's going on when we asked that question. And it was just an aha moment in our lives. We're not looking anymore. We know exactly what the Holy Spirit is doing when he has Muslims dream of a blue book. And so if you'll ask me back, I'll tell you why it's a blue book. I'm not going to tell you today, okay? Because I get asked a lot of places once. And, uh, and so here's what, here's what she was doing. She dreamed of that blue book. And, and she didn't know she wasn't supposed to talk about it. She told her family about it at breakfast. They don't know why she would dream of this Bible, this blue book. But her father had her come into the office and lock the door. And he took a burlap wrap something out of the locked door in his desk. And, and, and he had the blue book. And he said, I've had this for a couple years. I've been wanting to read it to see what these Christians believe and, and, and so I can debate them. But because of your dream, I'm going to let you have this blue book. And as she reached out to take it, he wouldn't let her have it. 
He said, my daughter, you need to know this, this is a dangerous book. This book can get you killed. But because God sent you the dream, I am forced to give you this book. And by the time Ruth and I caught up her, and the question I wanted you to answer is, how, how do you grow in, well, how do you come to Christ, which is what I'm describing, how do you grow in Christ, and how do you share Christ when the Taliban define your whole world? So I've located her within the parameters of at least two countries just now, if you, if you know what's going on in the world. By the time we caught up with her, we had never seen this anywhere in, in the Muslim world. She had, ladies, she had led over almost 30 women to Christ. They had been baptized and gathered into small groups. And the Taliban were after her, and they had, they had fought a, a death order against her for three reasons. One, she had converted to Christianity. In their words, she was converting other Muslim women uh, uh, to Jesus. And third, she worked for the United Nations in the realm of human rights and civil rights. And she was having Taliban men arrested for what they were doing to Muslim women in the refugee camps. And having them thrown in jail. Now, this is a young lady you don't want to mess with. She is as strong as anybody we've ever met. And the United Nations were so concerned for her safety and her life, they were arranging a place to extract her from her people uh, to take her to St. Louis, uh, Missouri. And I said to her, on your behalf, didn't ask you whether you agree or not, but I said to her, please don't leave. She said, Uncle Nick, uh, uh, they might beat me. I said, uh, that, that's happening every day. She said, Uncle Nick, they might put me in jail. I said, uh, that, that's, a, that's a real possibility. She said, Uncle Nick, it might cost me my life. I, I said to her, what if the salvation... About 17 million people in her people group, a bit of half of those would be women. I said, what? There, there is no one I know like you in the world. Uh, there is no one that God has raised up like you in this place at this time. What if the salvation of the Muslim women in your people group depend upon you staying here and suffering for the cause of Jesus Christ. And we read some of those stories from the Bible. We talked about them. We read the words of Jesus that he said, uh, uh, when persecution comes upon you, flee to Europe, go to America. Is that what Jesus said? When persecution comes upon you, every time you have a witness, life-sharing, challenge, church planting, house church planting challenge, and you have an issue you can't solve, it's perhaps because you're not telling yourself the right Bible story. And we shared that Jesus says, when persecution comes upon you, flee. You don't have to stay there and take a bullet. Go to the next city. And go to the next town. And go to the next family. And go to the next village. But he never extracted a believer, leaving those without a witness that desperately need the salvation that only Jesus brings. 
before I got home from this trip of learning from believers in many countries, uh, she made it, uh, they, they relocated her in St. Louis. But I'll just uh, leave her story there. What's God doing in the marketplace? God is sending Muslims by the millions. Well, I mean, I mean you're not going to find out of the uh, 1.5 billion Muslims on this planet, even in America, uh, dreams and visions are normal. And, and you know what Muslims do? If they are literate, and ladies in uh, the rural places of Yemen, Somalia, Afghanistan, Pakistan, choose your place. Uh, uh, illiteracy for men will be 45%, and it's always double that for women. So 90% of those 1.5 billion, well, half of those are women, 90% of them in rural areas can't read or write a word, and you're not going to be able to hand them a piece of literature. You're not going to be able to give them the scriptures. You're going to have to develop it in oral forms, Jesus film, places, ways that they can access it. Uh, you, ladies, more than that, you're going to have to learn their language and answer their questions and tell them God's story until you build enough stories in their lives to where they can find Jesus in God's stories. And Muslims all over the world, the only place, the only places where Muslims are not coming to Jesus in large numbers are the places we don't go. Wow. What's God doing in the marketplace? Ruth and I have been among low-caste Hindus in India. Some of the poorest people on the face of this earth. And they live so in community. They have a, a communal place, that, that one that they can water their beast. One where they can bathe and have semi-clean water. But you know what these low-caste uh, Hindus go through every day? There's one medical doctor, one nurse for every two-plus million low-caste Hindus. And mothers, one of the things that's broken our hearts the most on the mission field is to watch what moms will do to their babies when they are sick and they have absolute no access to an aspirin. It's horrible to watch. Horrible to watch. And low-caste Hindus are in desperately in need of, of Jesus as the great physician, as Jesus as a teacher, uh, uh, Jesus uh, 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 as, as the Messiah, the Son of God, of God himself. And we've got these upper class, usually young men, are going to these low-caste Hindu villages, and they're going by fours, they're smart. And they're going by sixes, and they're going by eights. And, and when you say to low-caste Hindus, uh, I've got a news from the God. Well, they've got 300 million minor gods, six to eight major gods. And they are so interested when you come with information, new information about the God. The whole village will sit at your feet, and they're asking them. They're asking them. I hope some of you will just pack up and go look at it. These young evangelists who have converted to Christ are asking them, how many of you are sick and all their hands go up? How many of you want to be healed? All of their hands go up. And in Jesus' name, they're walking in their midst, and everything you read that we just talked about in Matthew 
chapter 11, verses 2 through 6, when John asked Jesus, are you the Messiah? And he said, the blind see, lame walk, lepers cleanse, the dead are raised, uh, 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 all of this stuff. Uh, uh, the gospel now is getting to the poorest of the poor. That's being replicated time and time and time again among low-class Hindus, caste Hindus. Uh, there were three movements that we walked in and out of that they're baptizing ten to 20,000 people a month. You know, that's pretty good growth, isn't it? Pretty, pretty good growth. And, and as far as we know, and probably the last time we were there were about 10, 12 years ago, and I was there over a period of five or six years, uh, that is still what God is doing in the marketplace among low-caste Hindus. Uh, what is God doing in the marketplace in, in East Asia? And, and, and if you know your geography, you know which big communist country that I'm talking about. Every house church we could find prior to 1970 started with miracles of healing. I was meeting with a, a group of house church leaders and just wandered over one day when they were busy doing something to a village nearby. And I took the interpreter with me and, and they were just so interested to, to see this kind of face and hear this kind of they didn't know anybody could speak English with this kind of accent. Well, they hadn't met anybody like us. And, and then we just had a good time talking. And they, they wrote out everything under the sun that you might want to eat and what, what you might not want to eat. And, and I, later on in, in the day, I asked them, I said, who are those people over there? And those, that village said, oh, those are the people that love Jesus. And I said, Really? And, and, and what do you know about those people? They said, well, when we had this little girl that got really sick and she died, they came over here and prayed for her and she got up and we fed her something and, and now she's a teenager. You know what that sounds like? Sounds like the New Testament to me. See, one of the lies that often the Western churches in Europe particularly have believed and perhaps in, in our country in some places uh, the lie that Satan wants to say to us that the Bible is, is a book of authority. The Bible is God's holy word. The Bible is the very words and, and acts of God. And the Bible is a book that, that, that honestly, and you can use any word you want to, honestly records the very words and acts of what God used to do. With the implication being God's not doing this stuff anymore. And you know what we watched? We, we, I, 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 was, uh, I would listen to their stories and their testimonies and their lives for 14 hours a day. Midnight to 2 o'clock in the morning. I would teach uh, story after story from, the, from the, the book of Luke. I got up one morning and I walked out in their midst. And, and they're setting, and I'm, I don't know what's going on. Uh, uh, the 150 people there, and they're tearing their Bibles to shreds. Well, I didn't know what they were tearing. I just noticed they're tearing books up. And, and I, when I got a, in walking among them and saw they're tearing their Bibles up, that disturbed me to the roots of my being. And the interpreter, Jonathan, came running over, and he said, Nick, don't, don't, don't worry. They have been so thrilled to be able to go to, through God's Word uh, straight through the book of Luke and leaving nothing out 
And you know that out of 150 leaders, only seven of them have the literate Word of God. But folks, they have committed 70% of the stories of the Bible from Genesis through Acts by memory. And in that one movement, there are 10 million believers gathered in house churches. Now, that's worth getting excited over. And they had vowed unto God that everybody would go home with at least one book of the Bible. I know this is a lot to take in. And what they would ask this brother, this pastor of a house church, have you taught Genesis? And he says, well, I really haven't had the book of Genesis. They tore it out and gave it to him. And they asked this evangelist, have you taught the gospel of John? And he said, no, I haven't had it. And they tear John out. They asked this sister, uh, have you sung the hymn book of the Bible among your house churches that you're associated with? And she said, I didn't know we had a hymn book in the Bible. And they tore the Psalms out, and that took some tearing, and gave it to her. And I remember, man, I felt sorry, ladies, for the, for the, the, the person that got Philemon or Third John. Can, can you imagine your, your neighbor gets the whole gospel or Genesis, and you go home with one page or three pages? I think they're going to fire you. But what we watched is they, they meet in groups less than 30. They change the locations when they meet. Uh, they, they change the times of days, the days of the week they meet. And uh, uh, they said to me, Nick, 40% of us right now today are in prison. Men, women, rural, urban, older, young. They, they, they said to me, Nick, uh, in East Asia, prison is our theological seminary. It's where we get trained. Now that you're in our country, Nick, uh, uh, how many degrees would you like to have? I said, I'm good. Uh, Ruth needs me at home. And, you know, I, I just lied through my teeth, I think, and, and said, I just need to, to get back home. You, you know what I watched on the border of that country with the evil country that is east and north of them? I watched as a believing family of four pulled their chairs close together where their knees are touching. And when they began to sing their hymns, their choruses of faith, they move their lips and they don't let any sound come out. Because if the, the, their singing is heard through the paper-thin walls of their apartment, through the windows of the door of their house, uh, security policemen will be there by that evening and three generations of that family will be taken into a labor camp. And they're not going to come out for singing songs back to Jesus. And I'm watching this. And I'm experiencing this. And we're looking what God is doing in the marketplace among Islam, uh, among Hindus, and, and, uh, and, and among uh, uh, East Asians and communists and atheists. And you see, we came out of Somalia uh, uh, just so broken down and, and our souls were weary watching the believers reduced to four. In the two months that we were kicked out of Somalia, our 16-year-old son died of an asthma attack on Easter Sunday morning. Ruth's mother died two months to the day our son died of, of cancer. And, 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 and those were such low tie, tie, uh, times. And we were asking of God, how do we do this sheep among wolves thing? I've got my, my 
bachelor's. I, I've got my master's. I've got a doctorate. And what they poured into me, what they taught me, what they mentored me to do was to be a sheep among sheep. I didn't know how to be sheep among wolves. And now we're watching what God is doing among Muslims and, and Hindus and among those East Asians. And, and as I'm just soaking it all in and, and Ruth and I are, are having our lives changed, they looked at me and quickly they, they asked me about you. They asked me, uh, what is Jesus doing in America? And, and, and what does the body of Christ look like? And I just described this. I did. I just described uh, Jeremy. And, and those like him and, and praise teams and, and choirs and, and, and you guys and, 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 and your youth and children's program. And I thought that these East Asians, we were going to have a party. And they began to sob. I mean, they were broken. I mean, it's not just like tears falling. It's like they're, they, they sound like a vacuum cleaner. I mean, they're just, you know, just crying that hard. And I said, what did I say? What have I done to, to, to upset you and, and, and apparently break your heart so much? They said, you don't understand what you've said. You don't know what you've done to us. I, I said to them, uh, uh, Ruth's not here, so I don't know what I've done wrong. Right, guys? And they said, you really don't understand? I said, I, I, I'm sorry, I don't have a clue. And they got hurt. And it's against their culture, but they got a little bit angry. And they said, Ripken, which is the greatest miracle? That God heals a hundred of our people in East Asia, and maybe, and maybe ten of them, maybe, out of a out of, out of hundreds, can figure out their healing came from a God, and maybe two or three of them will figure out that that God's name is Jesus and find healing for their soul as well as their body. Which is the greatest miracle? You tell us that you can fly into Jacksonville, Florida, and go to a Baptist hospital, to a Baptist deacon, surgeon, orthopedic dude, and you can fly in on Sunday. He'll see you on Monday, do tests Monday afternoon and Tuesday, operate you on Wednesday, and two weeks later send you back. And you can do that 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We want to know, Ripken, which is the greatest miracle. You've watched us rip our Bibles in shreds so that everybody can go home with at least one book of the Bible. And you tell us that in Ethiopia, where you all live now, that on your desk... You have seven different translations of the Bible for yourself. Ripken, what do you think is the greatest miracle? 40% of our pastors and evangelists, women, elders, deacons, are in prison right now for their faith. And you're telling us that, that this Jeremy... These leaders can stand before God's people, and if they want to, they can share the word 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They can even do it in coffee shops. They can do it anywhere else, and, and they're not going to go to jail. They're not going to be beaten. They're, they're not going to lose their jobs. They're not going to lose their wives, their kids, their families, which is the greatest miracle, Ripken. And you tell us that, I told them about 
these praise teams and our Christian radio and television and, and all the resources we have to sing God's word and God's will back to him and, and to each other. And they said, you've watched us sit with our knees touching and not letting any sound come out. Uh, Ripken, we want to know which is the greatest miracle. And they went on and on and I wept like a baby. Because I realized, what have I called this thing called church in my country? I've called it normal. I have. I've called it common. They're everywhere. And God helped me. There have been times in my life where I thought, if I don't like this one, I've got all these others to choose from. Now, folks, you might have to chew on this for a while. Because this dream and vision things about Muslims may seem so foreign to your culture, not to biblical culture, that you might want to say, well, that's what God's doing among Muslims. And this healing stuff, since we don't attribute God's healing to our doctor's offices and our clinics and our hospitals. Well, maybe that's what just God's doing among low-caste Hindus. That's, that's their miracle. And, 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 and watching these East Asians lead tens of thousands of people to Christ in prison. Well, that's a great story, Ripken. But that's maybe that's what God's doing in East Asia. But what do you call this? This that we see as the body of Christ, the thing that insiders and outsiders call church. Do, do you see it as common? Do you see it as normal? God help us, like, are you like me and think this is what I deserve? And, and what my kids deserve? I'm begging you. To look in the mirror and see ourselves the way your brothers and sisters see us all over this planet. And see that what we have done here this morning and all the mornings before this and all the mornings to come. That, that the 70% of the believers on this planet would see this as an overt intervention miracle from the throne of God that God has not replicated hardly any other place on this planet. Will you claim your miracle this morning? Uh, she made it to St. Louis quickly. I know I'm out of time, and we got to go get on an airplane again. And, and uh, uh, I had a way of contacting her, and Ruth called her, and, and we brought her from St. Louis to rural Kentucky where we were on a furlough. And we took her to church for the first time in her life. I, I don't recommend that in the West at all. But we sat right back over here with her. And that church service was unusual for that church. They started off with a baptism of a whole family of a father, mother, and, and two teenage daughters, and I think a 12-year-old boy. And, and this, this young believer, first time in church, she's about, you know, she's about 28 years of age now, and and she's sitting between Ruth and I, and she's fidgeting, you know. And, 
And we, thought, we took her there on Saturday to sort of describe to her what she's going to experience because she's never been in a room except at her house where men and women are in the same room together. She's never been where married men and women sit together in public, let alone unmarried men and women sit together in public. And so she's doing this, and, and she's making noises under her breath, and I thought she's having a panic attack, and though she's a tough young lady. And, and I whispered to her and, and said, Darling, uh, sister, if, if, uh, if this is too much the first time, it's okay to go out. Ruth and you can slip out, and when the service is over, I'll come out and join you. And she, she said in this big, loud whisper, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. You're telling me. Now, everybody's starting to look and listen. You're telling me that a whole family is being baptized in public, and are you telling me that he's not going to be killed? That his wife's not going to be forced to marry a non-believing and she would say, Muslim man in the mosque? You're telling me that those two daughters are not going to be forced to marry a Muslim leader that's 40, 50 years older, and that young boy is going to be put in the most conservative village that's going to control him for the rest of your life? You're telling me that nobody's going to be killed, nobody's going to be beaten, nobody's going to be kicked out of their schools, their jobs, that, that you can do this in public? She said, if I ever go back or I email my believing family sisters in my country and tell them what I've just seen, I have no witness ever again because they would never believe that God himself could do such a miracle on this earth. She said, I think I'm going to stand up and shout. I said, well, girl. Stand up and shout. If they kick you out, Ruth will go with you. <laughs> and then I remember she said, why is everybody just sitting here? Why are they just sitting? She said, don't they see this for the overt miracle it is from the throne of God? Why aren't they standing and shouting and clapping and yelling praises to God? Don't they see how God himself has come down in their midst? Oh, this message could have one point. Church, brothers and sisters in Christ, will you claim your miracle this morning? Because this is this not common. Now this, this stuff's not normal. And God knows we are sinners saved by grace, and this is not what we deserve, is it? Oh, God, you know my heart and my words. Get, I get carried away, Lord, and I just, I just so much want your people to bask in your love and 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 that we share with our family and our friends across the street. And if, it, Lord, and if we're lucky across the oceans that we just share uh, your love from the overflow of experiencing your grace and your miracle in our midst. God, when we claim Jesus 
as the forgiver of our sins. And if you, Lord, can forgive our sins and give us eternal life, is there any other miracle on this planet that you cannot do? And I personally thank you, Lord, this moment that I get to read and follow a Bible that is being lived out in present active tense across this planet. And Lord, I admit I'm broken that so much of it is still Old Testament. And I beg you this morning that you will take these New Testament people and you will insert them in the Old Testament of this community for the sake of their salvation and for the joy of the cross. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.